Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm with Rick Paul, president of U.S. Benefits, a stop-loss MGU in Orange County, California. Rick is an actuary and has some interesting and unique and, I must say, sometimes controversial ideas on how to contain health plan costs. Welcome, Rick. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dorothy. So let's start by you telling us a bit about what you're seeing in the marketplace today from an underwriting and risk actuarial perspective. And for those listeners that may not be aware, Rick is an actuary. So I want to make sure that you're aware of that because that has a, a lot of uh, impact on how he answers his questions and how he talks about some of this stuff. He has a lot more experience in that sort of thing than I do. Let's start with the cost of a large claim and what's happening with those costs today. Uh, let's look at, for example, the dreaded million dollar claim of, say, three years ago. What's happened to that claim of a million dollars recently? Sure, thanks. So Sun Life put together a study, a large claim study, that represents 2,300 U.S. employer clients that covers 4.7 million people. They found that the top reasons for large claims uh, are expensive specialty drugs, extended hospital stays, and complex treatments um, are basically the major cost drivers of those types of claims. No surprise there. I actually did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago about cost containment and health plans, and those are the exact three things that I identified as well. So we're consistent on that. Yep. So the number of patients in 2015 was five, um, jumping to 12 in 2018, which is 140% increase. Claims over 1.5 million um, were 46 patients in 2015, and in 2018, the number jumped to 71, which is a 54% increase wow, that's a big in increase. the frequency. Mm -hmm. So these claims are happening more often, and then when they do happen, the amount that they go over the amount of the 1 million mm -hmm. is also increasing. Wow. Okay. So if you're a self-insured employer, this has got to be a big concern to you. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. The, you know, the uh, frequency versus severity injectable drugs for more common diseases such as cancers typically generate high cost because they're frequently prescribed. Other drugs accumulate high cost because the medication itself has a high average cost. So the also emerging treatments that we're going to be seeing are the new gene therapies, which can cure diseases with just mm -hmm. one dose, mm -hmm. but they come at an extremely high cost, sometimes $2 million. Wow. Um, I, I, when I, I mentioned that in my podcast a couple of weeks back, and, and they were ranging at that point, I was referring to, I think it was a PROACT study or something, from $473,000 up to, at that time, a couple of years ago, it was 875000 I believe. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's gone up even more since then for gene therapy drugs. Yeah, depending upon the drug, like Novartis uh, cures spinal muscular atrophy. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cost is over $2 million. It's uh, $2.1 million. We'll come back to the prescription drug topic because I do sure. have some additional questions on that. You've been a longtime supporter of reference-based pricing, and your stop-loss underwriting firm has given substantial discounts uh, when employers use reference-based pricing in their plans. Can you tell us why you like this form of payment, particularly for hospitals and facility charges? I would love to. So first, I would just want to give a little background mm -hmm. uh, where we are, kind of set the table. Mm -hmm. 
And as you know, self-funded plans typically will rent a PPO network. Right. And the benefit plan is designed to incentivize members to utilize the PPO in-network facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the member goes outside of the network, they typically will have more out-of-pocket expense or subject to higher deductibles or something, Mm -hmm. more co-insurance, et cetera. So the... So, so now we have these PPO uh, systems in place, and the Affordable Care Act came along. The Affordable Care Act did a f- several things, one of which was it removed annual and lifetime maximums. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, for fully insured carriers, and this matters, it set minimum loss ratio requirements, which seems like a great idea, mm-hmm. sort of. Except that it incentivizes the insur- the insurance carrier to not care what costs are. In that, if they, if they run lower than the minimum loss ratio, they have to give the money back anyway and lower their premium, which lowers their margin. Mm-hmm. So it actually incentivizes them to go ahead and they don't care what things so they cost because yeah. they can just pass it along and justify their premium rate increases, which help them earn more. So I just wanted to bring all of those components into the discussion. Okay. Um, So networks now, they provide negotiated rates with providers that we have no idea what those contracts say. Right. And they typically are a percent off build. Mm -hmm. And that percent off build that's a big question mark. What is build? Yeah. Well, there's no, I have never seen anything in these contracts that say, that limit what the provider can bill. Right. Only what the discount is off build. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, mm-hmm. and here we are as an industry relying on the good faith of PPO networks. Right. But there, I have not seen this. And so, reference based pricing benchmarks what a plan has deemed they will pay. Since annual lifetime maximums are gone, a plan should find some comfort in being able to budget for healthcare costs by setting a benchmark that is outside of what these PPO networks are doing right now, Mm -hmm. which frankly um, expose everyone to excessive cost of medical services. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen um, in the last five years, I've seen the cost of uh, bill charges 10 to 12 times what Medicare allows right. on right. stop loss claims. Okay. Yeah. Think about that. So you're getting 30% off uh-huh. of an inflated number of 10 times Medicare. 10, 10, so you're paying 10. seven times Medicare yeah. for that preferred provider. Right. Negotiated discount, and I still Thank don't think you. that. Yeah, I still don't think that people really understand that because uh, what are you seeing in as far as PPO discounts compared to um, oh, across the board compared to reference-based pricing? Do you have any idea of that? Because um, what, what we've generally it's like seen, thirty, okay. twenty-five, thirty okay. percent um, okay. on the aggregate. It's a little less, but okay. on the stop loss, it, 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 I mean, it depends on the PPO network. Yeah. It depends on the. Uh, the area, like if it's Maryland, it's going to be less, but that's because Maryland, everybody pays the same. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I've forgotten about that. That's true. So, 
So let's talk a little bit about um, transparency. You mentioned uh, reference-based pricing um, with, with prior conversations that we've had, and um, you like the fact that the, the costs are transparent under reference-based pricing. As a matter of fact, when I first started learning about this discussion, this topic, you were one of the people that I initially talked to, and you helped to educate me on some of the reference-based pricing uh, models and so forth and why they work so well and why you discount so well for them. Um, would you like to comment a little bit about the transparency? Yeah, I'd love to. So first thing, Medicare um, Medicare amounts are something that's known. Uh, mm -hmm. It's easy. You can look it up. Uh, the, the information um, is readily available. And as such, it's, it, it allows the employer to actually know what they're going to cover, sort of like a budget. If you were to send an employee out um, to travel on business, mm -hmm. you would have a budget for them. Right. Um, and you're not going to allow them to necessarily take, uh, you know, um, Ritz Carlton stays and mm -hmm. eat at the most expensive, right? But right. health healthcare, we don't have anything like that. Right. And also, so transparency in that this is what we will reimburse at. We're right. setting up a maximum amount that is fair for us to, mm -hmm. to cover the medical services. You, you mentioned that you were seeing 10, 12 times Medicare on some of these things. What we've seen in the past is, um, based on just looking at the, once we see the reference-based pricing amounts, once we can see what those are when we have clients that do that, what it looks to me is like most of the PPO networks are coming in around 300 to 600% um, for the majority of the claims of Medicare prices for the hospitals where we can bring in Medicare rates uh, under a reference-based pricing plan at 140, 150%. Right. So that's immediate savings right there on every single claim. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 why obviously why you discount them. Yeah, and that's absolutely. Yeah, I think that I just wanted to bring that up because I don't think people really understand the differences there when you're talking about you know sometimes these sometimes they're charging 10, 12 times right. what Medicare charges. Keep in mind, even with the PPO discount, it's three hundred to six hundred percent. And again, that's my right. just what I've seen in general. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're, you're the actuary. Well, <laughs> so I've seen nationally um, the average bill. Charges. This is across, uh -huh. you know, all um, all states, uh -huh. and it's about five times. Five times what Medicare okay. allows. Okay. And your average discount's around thirty percent. Okay. So okay. you're paying three and a half times what Medicare. Right. So so if, uh, and the reason why um, so a lot of times on RVP the balance bill mm -hmm. is is the dreaded right. Scare, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, no one wants the insured to be balance billed. Um, so there are solutions to that, and there are uh, ways to minimize that and deal with provider pushback, which mm -hmm. we can we can talk about. But but essentially, that is the key component of or the key risk of RBP. And like, the question is, do you want to do this as an employer? Right. Um, and and it really I think will depend upon your employee base mm -hmm. and and how much you want to spend on the healthcare option mm -hmm. or pay your employees. Some employees right. would prefer getting more more pay. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we've seen is depending upon the class of employees, the employees often will elect to have if they are given an option. I'd rather have more money in my pocket. And then I'll go the RVP route and 
deal with the balance bill in the event that it does happen. Right. And what happens is there's selection. Mm -hmm. Insurance is all about selection. Mm -hmm. And so when employees have certain health conditions that they know they're going to have pushback, like they don't want to be balance billed for, right. they may end up being covered under their spouse's plan. Yeah. They get that election every year. Yeah. And that's not bad for a self-funded plan to offer that. I yeah. know that's kind of like a it's a controversial subject. But it's but it's but come on, matter of fact, yeah. every one of us do does this, right? We're going to calculate our out of pocket mm -hmm. and make the dis decision based on financial what makes financial sense to us. Well, what I've seen in employer plans too is that employees, if they know they have a really large ongoing uh, claim, a lot of times they'll opt in both their plan and their spouse's plan um, and vice versa. Yeah. And then they coordinate the benefits between the two. Exactly. Which which the primary plan, of course, takes the, the largest portion of it. But, you know, yeah. that's, I mean, people do that. I mean, people, there there is always, you know, the smarter they get about these things, the more they can you know, decide on how they, how they want to get these things covered, get the most amount of things paid. So basically in reference price pricing, um, your main focus here is predictability and transparency. Yeah, I right. Okay. It can't. It can't be more transparent. Right. We will pay 140 percent of the Medicare allowable. Right. right. Not which, some 30 percent off build, and I have no idea how to calculate. Yeah, you don't know build. what the starting point is on a PPO. So, yeah. so it brings transparency right, right back, right yeah. to the surface. Yeah, I like it too. I've been obviously a strong supporter of reference-based pricing as well, uh, but obviously I haven't been doing it as long as you have. You've been doing it a lot more years, and and it started, you know, further east. It started. Um, you know, other parts of the country before it really made its way here to California. So it's you know, even the, been done in bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it when I first saw this, mm -hmm. it was only for dialysis. Oh, and okay. it was a, a company that was uh, helping companies save a lot of money if they had people who were going, um, who had chronic renal failure. Okay. And so they would use benefit plan language to help reduce the cost of that. Um, uh, liability for the plan. Okay. And it resulted in lasers dropping from 400,000, 500,000 to maybe a 90 to 100,000. Okay. Well, that makes so, a big difference. We'll talk yeah. more about that later as well. Well, we we talked earlier a little bit about prescription drug costs, and I know that's one of your favorite topics to discuss as of now. Um, obviously, the cost of specialty drugs is astronomical, and you mentioned one of the situations for that. Um, you told me recently about uh, a fact that how 40 countries represent 80% of what's spent on pharmaceuticals. Um, where does the United States stand in this? <laughs> well, we get the honor and privilege of paying, out of that 80%, we pay 45% of that cost. Okay. Uh, we represent, the United States represents 36% of the world um, revenue spend on drugs in 2015. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money and a lot of percentage of the of the total cost. Huge. The nearest, the 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 runner up, Japan, is nine point nine percent. To give you an idea, versus United States at thirty six percent. Thirty six percent. Wow, that's huge. So uh, there's lots of reasons why uh, that is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is advertisements. Right. The United States is one of two countries that permit advertisement of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, which I've always been against as well from day one because obviously people see it on TV, they think they need that. 
Remember back in the day when they first started advertising, they talked about the purple pill? Nobody even knew what the purple pill was or what it treated, but yet everybody wanted the purple pill. Remember that? I thought yeah. that was insane. It's like, why are you even... Oh, but yeah, it took it probably took about three months for me to figure out what the purple pill was even for. <laughs> it was crazy. Who cares? I know. It's I on TV. It. Yeah. I want it because it's on TV. So another thing is the cost of scripts uh, is proportional to the number of entities negotiating the cost by country. Okay. So... The more parties that are involved in that price negotiation, the higher the cost of the script in the market. So mm -hmm. the in Mexico, they uh, had, I think it was like 70 different agencies negotiating costs mm -hmm. in 2000, until like 2005. And then once they consolidated it into one, they ended up saving 20 billion over four years. Wow. So other countries, they have consolidated that negotiation and say, if you want to sell that script in our market, you have to do so based on, and then they have reference-based pricing approaches, value-based pricing approaches, and also generic verse brand name um, drugs and focuses. And so that really pushes the price down mm -hmm. of the drug when it's sold in that market. Whereas here in the U.S., we have thousands and thousands of different entities negotiating the price. Mm -hmm. And you would think that more uh, entities might help lower the cost, but it doesn't. It just creates more layers and layers of people that need to get paid. Yeah. And that is a big problem in the U.S. right now. Yeah. And it absolutely is. And you're right. There are a lot of layers. <laughs> there are a lot of layers. Well, we talked about some of the expensive drugs. We talked about gene therapy drugs. Um, and I think people are pretty much aware of the hep C drugs, how they've come down in price. Thank goodness. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the other high cost drugs? Sure. Uh, first, the big one uh, that takes the cake is Zolgensma. It's uh, $2.1 million. Wow. <laughs> Luxterma. 850,000, Myelep, uh, 778,000. Uh, you can see the price tags on these drugs wow. are substantial. Often they're, they cure a disease that uh -huh. uh, before was uncurable. So they're amazing, amazing drugs uh, that just are so expensive. Uh, other popular brand name drugs in the US that are taken every month are Embrel, uh, Humira, Genvoya, Truvada, these drugs um, just will, they're uh, commonly prescribed, more commonly prescribed, yeah. and and and, uh, and so all of them are and very some are, expensive. And some of them are advertised on television, Humira is advertised on television. Yeah. How expensive is that drug now? Do you, know, you have any uh, Around, the cash price is around 7700 dollars yeah. a month. I guess it'd be worth paid advertising for that, you know, put a commercial out there and let more people buy it. Yeah. Oftentimes the argument um, of why it costs so much in the U.S. is we pay for all the R&D, mm -hmm. but often the R&D is less than the actual advertisement budget. Budget really? of the drug. I don't think people. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I really think that we need to do something, and we can talk about this more in a bit. But I think that this country needs to do something about getting generics to the market faster because these these brand name drugs and these specialty drugs are just the costs are insane. The costs are absolutely insane, and you know they're doing all kinds of things. They're playing the the drug manufacturers, from what I've been 
reading and so forth and hearing about in lectures and, and so forth is that their, you know, their patent's just about up, so they'll tweak one little thing, one little component within the drug, and then they file for a whole new patent, and then they still can't bring generic drugs to the market. It's just delaying, you know, right. pay, for, pay for delay type of situations, and it's just insane. Yeah. It's just insane. At some point, there needs to be, the government needs to step in and say enough is enough. Yeah. The private sector has been funding more than their fair share. Yeah, yeah, I would think. Well, there are things that can be done here in the United States for people who need high-cost specialty drugs, and many employers aren't even aware of these. Can you tell us what some of the specialty drug manufacturers are offering for their participants if their drugs maybe aren't covered by their health plan or if their out-of-pocket cost is just more than they can afford? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, probably I've heard this on advertisement on television when these drugs are advertised. Uh, typically, it sounds something like if your plan does not cover the drug, you may be eligible to receive the drug at no or little cost to you if you qualify. This is essential an income test relative to the price of the drug and the person's income. So what, is, what do they have to do in order to qualify for that? There are uh, manufacturer... Um, Forms you fill out and then uh, see if you qualify based on the based on the cost of the drug, and they will let you know. And then if you do, they basically send you the drug. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that we need to advertise more. If you're going to advertise anything, I would think they should be advertising that rather than the cost of Humira, or rather than mentioning Humira without telling them it's a seven thousand plus drug. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's. Often will be at the end of the yeah, advertisement. That no one pays any attention that's to. That's really it's in the said. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the fine print. <laughs> yeah. And the when they're talking print. about how you can die and da da da. Yeah. All yeah. The... yeah. People have already tuned out by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. All right. As an underwriter and an actuary, of course, uh, you prefer not to pay for the cost of some of these drugs in a perfect underwriting world. In the world, let's say, according to Rick Paul, uh, with the ability to do whatever you wanted to do and exclude whatever you wanted to exclude, what would you recommend to employers? Well, I would say every employer needs to look at the purpose of the self-funded plan that they're offering their employees mm -hmm. um, first. Mm -hmm. uh, they should definitely consider whether or not to exclude specialty drugs from their self-funded plan, even um, mental health. They can exclude those um, yeah. types of benefits under the self-funded plan. So. Doing that limits the liability that the yeah. plan is facing substantially, and it's just going to limit it even more going forward. Yeah, we've uh, done we've done some things on on self funded plans similar to that. For example, um, our a lowest cost plan, and maybe an MVP plan, minimum value plan. We've had a situations where we've had um, generic only drugs covered, but yeah. if you want if you want brand names and if you want specialty drugs, and you buy up to the higher plans and get those covered under those plans. Right. So we've offered those types of things. It's interesting that you brought that up. And also, interestingly enough, um, before the Mental Health Parity Act went into effect, uh, I talked to all of our self-funded uh, clients and told them, understand that with the Mental Health Parity Act, if you offer it, you pay for 100% of everything, no maximums, or you don't offer it. And every one of our self-funded clients at that time opted to not cover mental health. So, um, and I think that's a point that some health plans may have decided not to cover mental health benefits, but they may have forgotten to exclude it off the drug list, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, they, they still cover it. They still cover things like, you know, 
behavioral medications and, and all kinds of other types of medications. And I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying that I don't know if they understand when they're designing those plans hmm. that they can actually take the, the medical por portion of it and then they can also do the same within the drugs. They can they can go to the drug vendor, the, the, the PBM, for example, and say, I don't want to cover any of these types of drugs. Um, and again, that's controversial because some people don't like that. You, know, you have to cover all these things. But if you're already not covering mental health plan benefits, why would you need to cover mental health prescription drugs? Good question. <laughs> I mean, that's just something that, I, and I've seen that with, with uh, other plans out there in, in the marketplace. So obviously, you're uh, in favor of prescription drug reform. <laughs> Definitely. And I told you my ideas on that a little bit, but uh, how would you reform the Rx market? Well, one, I would like to see the end of marketing advertisements of Yes, yeah. I agree. 100% I agree Number with you. One. Um, the second one I think would be huge and that is to require for any drug to be sold in the United States of America, it must be at the lowest worldwide price of the top 40 countries based on revenue spend. Mm -hmm. We are the biggest market. Given that we are the biggest market, we should have the greatest buying pressure of those drugs. Mm -hmm. And we need to hold those pharmaceutical companies accountable. Okay. And that is how you do that. And that will spread all the cost of the manufacturing of these drugs, the research and development, the advertisement and everything across the world instead of us Americans paying for the brunt of those drugs. So we pay it on our back. Right. So how would, you, how, how, would, how would you do that? How would you do that? Would you, can you break it down? How would you do that? You have a government agency, mm -hmm. sort of like a Medicare or a, a Health and Human Services, HHS, basically set the price mm -hmm. and you calculate what all these other countries are paying for these scripts okay. and we get the lowest one. Okay. We pay the lowest one. If they want to sell that drug in the United States and have it covered. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I would say any drug that costs more than $500,000 um, is should have an option of not being covered by a, a health plan. Mm -hmm. Anything of that size should have an option to be excluded from, to put pressure to keeping the cost of these drugs low. And, and that's, that would be an annual cost. So if it was monthly, yeah. you know, yeah. 30,000 times 12, okay, I guess that's okay. But you can see the cost to manufacture these drugs should not be that high. Yeah. They should be able to make money at lower levels. And of course, you're going to have the people listening to this to say, you can't do that. You have to allow everybody to have every single drug because this is what we do in America. We cover everything. This is self-funded plan. <laughs> and self-funded plans, beauty of self-funded plans is you can look at how you want to spend the money. Mm -hmm. So whereas a fully insured plan, that, that's more true, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And and uh, but an employer who's providing health care to their employees under a self-funded plan should be able to say this is where we, how we want to spend our dollars. They could also take a look at their plan and say, for example, the highest cost drugs in these categories we won't cover, but we will cover at least one drug that's at a lower cost for that particular yeah. illness. And I, and I think that's what people, where they, I think people might not understand that. You can select which drugs to cover and which not. You may select um, in a formulary or you can customize your own yeah. formulary in a self-funded plan, which I don't think people really understand, and say that the, there are, let's say, seven drugs available uh, for treatment of this condition. 
we will cover these three drugs because they have the highest level of uh, effectiveness and the lowest cost. Right. And then if you want to use another one, you're welcome to, but you pay the difference. Yeah. So it's out of your pocket. Right. And boy, does behavior change yeah. when it's your pocket versus someone else's yeah. pocket. Yeah. So I think the point that I want to make in this is that what Rick says, it sounds like it might be controversial, but when you break it down, you think about it, he's not saying don't cover health conditions. He's saying, I think what you're saying is cover them and be smart about it. Based on value-based based, yeah. pricing, yeah. value-based decision-making, mm-hmm. and also having some kind of reference yeah. of what makes sense for deploying right. those, do- those precious dollars. Right. So this comes right back to the idea of the reference-based pricing type of thing. So if you had a government agency that says if you're going to regulate anything, how about regulating the maximum cost, like you mentioned, um, on each of these types of drugs, um, that would be the benchmark. And that would be based on, you know, we would base all expenses on that. Exactly. Okay. If the if if this condition is already treated by existing drugs mm-hmm. and there's a new drug brought into the market, mm-hmm. well, how much better is it yeah. than the existing drugs? Right. And is it worth the value of paying right. more? A lot of people just like the new shiny thing. Well, it's like what you, you were saying earlier is they just tweak the drug a little bit yeah. to try to keep it going. Yeah. There should be an agency that says, na, na, na. Uh-huh you can issue generics on this drug and go ahead and tweak it like right. that and you can offer that. Yeah. But That's... there's generics now available. Right. Right. And and there you go. Yeah. It's insane if people think how, if, if you take a look at what the cost of some of these generics are in comparison to the yeah. big brand name drugs. I mean, you're talking in some cases $6 versus $742. Or more. Or more. Yeah. yeah. Because another company ended up buying that company that was selling it at 600 and now they raise price to six thousand. And we've all seen that across, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> EpiPens, everything else. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's really sad. But I think if they're going to regulate it at all, I think they should take a look at those types of things. And I think one of the most important pieces of legislation I would like to see in this country, since this is my podcast and I can bring up my opinions from time to time, I would really like to see them say that you know lower the time period before people can start working on bringing out um, generic drugs onto the marketplace. Mm. I think that's one thing that we've needed to do in this country for a long time. Yes, there's research and development costs, but maybe if they limited the time period before a generic drug came out, maybe somehow miraculously that research and development costs will start going down. I mean, that's my personal opinion because you and I both know that sometimes they play with these things. Or save the money on their advertisement budget. Save the money on the advertisement budget and you don't have to worry about that because, they're, yeah, as you said, that's more expensive than the research and development. They're building that <laughs> it all can into, be. It can be. And, yeah. and they're building that into the cost of the drug when it hits the market. And if they spread that R&D cost across the world instead of America, just right. America, right. guess what? Yeah. They could actually make more money. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a surprising thing? Wouldn't that be nice for all of us to consider? But anyway, so I guess we kind of talked about drugs and people are probably getting mad at us enough as they're listening to this. Okay, so we'll move on to a different topic. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of the important conversations in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, I just got back from Washington, D.C. myself. I was at a, a legislative conference and we were on the Hill talking to legislators about things like uh, medical surprise billing and Medicare for all and public option proposals for presidential candidates and so forth. You have a very interesting theory on sort of a twist on Medicare for All that I would like you to share with our listeners. From what I understand, you're not in favor of Medicare for All that the Democrats are proposing because that would eliminate the employer-sponsored healthcare marketplace, but 
you think that the use of Medicare as a benchmark could be a way to control healthcare costs, particularly with uh, facility costs. Can you explain your Rick Paul Medicare for all concept? I'd love to. So uh, as you've heard Bernie talk about Medicare for all, right? And, yeah. and it makes sense, right? We, mm-hmm. we cover, we already currently cover um, healthcare costs for the elderly and we do it for the poor people. Why don't we do it for ourselves, right? A good argument. Um, but uh, uh, I don't think government-run Medicare will work. Mm-hmm. Um, it just won't. I don't yeah, think our and, I don't and, think our existing Medicare system could handle more people in it. For one it, thing, I don't yeah, think enough it doctors. Just, well, it, it yeah. just it just doesn't it won't it won't work. I mean, mm-hmm. you you you've seen the VA, mm-hmm. you've seen the success there, right? right. Uh, or lack of. So, but so going back to the Medicare for all, um, when I say I, I kind of agree. I mean in that if we had a level playing field mm-hmm. on what reimbursements are and we stopped discriminating on what we what providers accept for uh, reimbursement based on the patient's payer, uh-huh. I know that's a lot to swallow what I just said, we have to end provider discrimination on what they accept for reimbursement based on the patient's payer. That in essence has created the, this wall um, of who knows what things cost mm-hmm. because nobody knows what things cost until they sort it all out in their billing department. Yeah. Okay. And it's highly complex. Whereas if it's Medicare for all, and we all pay the same price for the same service. Okay. And it's regulated in that the government receives the information from the provider that is the cost and then marks it up so they can earn a, a reasonable amount of profit, and we all pay that amount, oh yeah, we'll... We wouldn't have these problems. We will be rocking and rolling. So you're, you're saying that the Medicare, like reference-based pricing, how they paid 140% of Medicare, 150% of Medicare, you're saying for every type of procedure, for every facility, for every you know high cost... Uh, we all pay the same, 100% Everybody of the pays Medicare the same. For, so it doesn't matter where, matter where in the, again, in the, in the world, according to Rick, um, it wouldn't matter where you went to get the service. You'd pay the exact same amount because it, that, they would set a benchmark and say, this is what you charge for this. Correct. And then make sure it's profitable for everyone. Right. Um, but and they do that in gouging. Maryland. They've been doing that in Maryland since the 90s. Mm-hmm. And what they found is even during recessions, hospitals in, those, uh, in that state mm-hmm. were profitable. Okay. Unlike other states where they lose money when it, they're in a recession because of the, the swing in the, in the um, cost of care, mm-hmm. who's, coming, who's covered and who's not. So basically you're, you're talking about making a, a reference-based pricing approach, but just straight across the board yeah. and saying that everybody has to I would love Medicare people. for all as long as we maintain the current system yeah. pricing and we just ended the discrimination. So, so, and basically people could keep their self-funded plans. They could keep any plan they want, but just when they get a bill, the bill is priced the same regardless of where you go, depending on, right now it depends on whether you have a PPO with Anthem or PPO with Aetna or PPO with Cigna or PHCS. Think or, of this, we end, we end the... We end the PPOs. Whatever you're paying for a PPO network access fee, mm-hmm. it's gone. Okay, because everybody the, because the rain, paying, it's gone. It's it's like that's a whole pricing. layer. Yeah, that we that that is paid for, that is gone. That's wiped out. Simple mm-hmm. billing departments in these hospitals gone, because it's just one simple. Everyone pays the same. Yeah, I don't know. 
again, how hospitals would feel about this, how providers would feel about this, because they they're the want, ones be losing all the huge profits that they're making. They would, they, they would say they can't do it. They, of course they and, would. Yeah. And, but, but that's not true. They can do it. Um, they may need, in Medicare, what Medicare pays may have to go up. Mm -hmm. If their costs, if they show their costs would lose money, mm -hmm. the amount that they get reimbursed would have to go up. But that balance that uh, where one party's paying more than another mm -hmm. shifts and it all squeezes down, we all pay the same, you'll see much more success in the hospitals long term. Yeah, but you could obviously, and even in your system that you're thinking, um, I want to just point out once again, you're not saying Medicare for all like Bernie is saying, you're saying just... Not a government run. Not a government program. It's a privately run situation where all the, everybody just submits like they do in the current Medicare system what their actual costs for those services are. Correct. Which is what they have to do with the charge master and in Medicare and just the government would just set a fixed price for each of those services. <clears throat> right. And well, the Republicans have talked about uh, opening up uh, insurance mm -hmm. across state lines to help lower the mm -hmm. cost of health care. And to me, that is a not the way to do it. It's not going <laughs> to that's not going to lower the cost of care because that's just that's that's not doing anything. And you know, it's like opening up uh the um Idaho real estate agents to come sell right. real estate in California. It's the cost of real estate in California is going to be the same price. Mm -hmm. It's not going to change unless you do something to the underlying area and deal with cost. Mm -hmm. And Medicare for all does that. It mm -hmm. ends the discrimination uh, price discrepancy based on the patient's payer. And yeah. it makes everyone pay the same transparency and um, it might result in Medicare having to pay a little more right. for those services. But overall, you wouldn't it have simplifies the, you, everything. Yeah. You wouldn't have the discrepancy between the Medicare rate, the reference-based pricing rate, the and then the PPO rate of three hundred and six to six hundred percent of that, and then the and then the other rates of 10, 12, 15 times Medicare in certain situations with certain hospital bills and so forth. Everybody right. would just be exactly the same for all the charges right. under, under your under your scenario under your and world you according to rate. And, and you have free market. Yeah. You have a free market now. We're all on the same playing field. Yeah, yeah. Why and hasn't so, anyone thought so about this that? So this competition. Think <laughs> of the competition. Now you got competition. Hospitals have to compete against each other now. Uh -huh. um, in a Medicare, in because they're all paying the same, so they got to run efficient. Yeah. We yeah. don't. We don't run efficient in this country. The world. The admin expenses on hospitals typically is ten percent worldwide. Ours is over twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just saying basically set a set a benchmark, a Medicare type benchmark that everyone can afford as far as, you know, the providers can live on it. Right. And 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 just now, price it all on that. Since you did say the world according to Rick, I'm just gonna throw in a few more. So <laughs> I know you have more ideas. Got, so we've had many discussions we, on we these. Talked like about, <laughs> we talked about some of this stuff. So I since 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 it's um, Trump has this thing right now, you know, make Make America great again. Make healthcare great again. Right. So, um, we talked about one: require Americans pay the lowest price for pharmaceuticals of the forty major industrial nations that have the highest uh, pharma spend in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, let this is this is controversial. This one: let insurers fully underwrite the health risk and exclude people that they deem uninsurable from. Yeah, the, that's from absolutely. The plant. That's absolutely. 
anybody who is deemed uninsurable <laughs> uh -huh. from a private health plan automatically becomes Medicare eligible. Okay. Okay. So then Medicare is going to blow up. That's fine. That that's <laughs> that's born that's born on the backs of the American taxpayer, and I believe no matter where you are on the aisle, none of us uh, want anybody who has a condition. Um, not get their care. Mm -hmm. We all want that, no matter right. where we are. And these people are uninsurable. Mm -hmm. They're not insurance risks. You wouldn't ask an insurance company to insure a home that is burning. Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't. Right. Okay. Um, you wouldn't ask an insurance company to cover a house that was destroyed by an earthquake. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know that is. You just wouldn't. And so. But none of us want these people not to get the care, and 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 so that. And by the way, there has been a precedence: uh, chronic renal failure. Mm -hmm. Okay, back right. in the '60s, right. people right. were dying because they weren't able to get the dialysis care, and so that became a Medicare eligible event. There is a precedence for this. Okay, so that will impact private health insurance substantially. Because it removes risks that's uninsurable from the insurance pool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the other thing is require all providers and, and facilities to end the discrimination on what they accept for reimbursement and have them set a price that they will accept regardless of who comes in. Right. And use Medicare as a benchmark. Whether it's 125% of Medicare, 200% of Medicare, they can set the price, but they have to set a price and that's the price. Okay, of anybody who operates in that facility, whether it's a surgeon, anesthesiologist, that's that's the price that they're going to reimburse, and they agree with this. So there's no surprise billing or anything like that. It's all disclosed up front. Insurance cards are issued that say we cover up to 150% of Medicare, so the insureds are armed and they can go to the facilities that say, okay, we do 140% of Medicare. And their insurance says 150, they're good. They can go to the 140. Mm -hmm. But if they go to one that says 200, right. guess what? They're paying the difference. Mm -hmm. Okay? Or they just don't go there. So um, the other thing is uh, nonprofit hospitals and all emergency care in the United States should be at 100% of the Medicare allowable, regardless of the payer. Why are we giving tax breaks to, to nonprofit hospitals? Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, and they sometimes are the worst offenders. They charge 10 times what Medicare allows as a nonprofit hospital. Yeah, that's insane. Hello, people. That's insane. Yeah. And what's worse is sometimes they're out of network. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'll get to that later. Um, doing what I just said, those, those four bullet points, huh. that could lower the cost by more than half yeah. of what employers That'd be pretty pay. significant. I think... I, again, you admitted that part of that was, was controversial. You are an underwriter. You are an actuary. And, of course, wouldn't every underwriter, wouldn't every underwriting firm want to be able to just throw the risks elsewhere so that you wouldn't have it? Because, obviously, you'd be able to but have it. But it's not a risk. Mm -hmm. You're saying it's not a risk. It's shifting. 100%. It's a financial obligation. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not a risk. See, it's not insurance risk. There's okay. a difference. If you know something is going to cost you X, mm -hmm. that's not insurance that's financial. That's an, that's a financial thing. So you think there should be a bigger risk type pool for the Medicare situations for those for those. We, it is. We, it's the American taxpayers. Right. And we've had we've had different risk pools set up in the past, and they've tried a lot of different things. This is very simple. It's national, much bigger risk pool, mm -hmm. much 
much easier way to handle it. Just kind of do what they've done. We've with, already been doing it with, with renal, failure. renal yeah. failure. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, those are interesting. Those are interesting concepts, and maybe some people will, you know, take a listen to this and, and think maybe they should start thinking outside of the box just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> so let's talk about balanced billing for a moment. You have some interesting points on this as well, particularly regarding states attorneys generals, uh, what they're doing and so forth. Can you share some of these thoughts with us? Yeah, I, I wish I didn't see this, but I, I did. Um, we saw a uh, man have a heart attack and he was picked up by an ambulance mm -hmm. and he was brought to the closest hospital, which is the protocol, uh, which happened to be an out-of-network nonprofit hospital. Mm -hmm. Okay, the man spent 16 days of his life there and unfortunately passed away. Okay. Mm -hmm. In those 16 days, this nonprofit hospital billed $1.9 million for that stay. That's a, almost $120,000 a day mm -hmm. in billed charges. Yeah. Okay. So Medicare would have paid around $200, but because the bill was so excessive, mm -hmm. there's outlier agreements, and so they kicked in another um, couple hundred thousand. So that brought it from twelve thousand five hundred a day to twenty-five grand a day, what Medicare would allow mm -hmm. for the sixteen-day stay. Which to me, four hundred thousand dollars for a sixteen-day stay. Yeah. I think that's a lot, <laughs> personally. Uh -huh. I mean, what can you do? Mm -hmm. um, the since it was out of network, the self-funded plan had usual customer reasonable provision in the plan, right. and they determined that the amount that they would pay was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars or $47,000 per day for the 16-day stay. That's what they paid. So the facility, the hospital, sent a balanced bill to the man's widow of over a million, million dollars, dollars yeah. with a notice that said, if you have 30 days, you have 30 days to pay this amount. If you are unable to pay this amount, please contact us and we'll work something out. So, if you think about that, million dollar balance bill. That's ridiculous. For, for, a, wid right? for a widow, yeah. A nonprofit. A non so, first hospital. thing, the guy had good insurance. Mm -hmm. All of us have insurance, right? Mm -hmm. He had good insurance. Mm -hmm. He had a heart attack. Ambulance takes him to the closest facility protocol. It's out of network. Nonprofit. Yeah. $1 million balance bill to the widow. So when she's unable to pay this balance bill, guess what the hospital does? What does the hospital do? They sue her mm -hmm. to get the money. Right. That's pretty, that's pretty common, actually. Now, the, since it's a teaching hospital, it was the attorney general of the state suing this widow. Now, the man, he was a janitor. So you can imagine the, she lost her husband, and now he had good insurance, but it's no fault to himself. He's at a nonprofit, out-of-network hospital, and the attorney general is suing this woman. I don't, like, to me, this is the problem mm -hmm. that we have, and we're all exposed to this liability in America. Mm -hmm. And so, in, in my opinion, this is the problem, and we need to address it and put it in front of our faces and solve it yeah. as an industry. Mm -hmm. Because that woman, she, I mean, she had enough on her hands, yeah. and and to be able to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, it you know this is this is the, it's the challenge. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, 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 it's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. We're all exposed to that liability. Yeah. 
<laughs> Could you imagine? I just can't even. That poor woman. That that's right. That's, that's insane. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm. I shouldn't be laughing about it, but it's just. Well, no. It's, it's almost, just so. It's just so. Yeah. yeah. It's not. You're not laughing. Yeah. You're just like, oh my. Like, yeah. how is this even possible? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I know you feel the plan document language is one of the most important components to a health plan, particularly if self-insured. Uh, what are some of the plan provisions that you would recommend as an actuary and an underwriter related to keeping costs under control? Uh, well, okay, so there's several provisions. One is the assignment of benefits provision. Mm -hmm. That is a very important provision, and in a self-funded plan should be written in such a way that if the plan makes payment to a provider, that that provider is agreeing to payment in full for the services rendered. Mm -hmm. So if they cash that check, yeah. they have agreed to payment in full. And I've seen people with plan document language like that in their plans, and they still balance bill. Yeah. They, well, and, and if, if that happens, mm -hmm. they will most likely end up losing, right? Because they cash mm -hmm. the check. But you have to have the plan language, and it has yeah. to have it on the check when you send it to. There's I mean, contact an attorney for for that right. setting that up correctly. Um, but that is some language that I have seen that's been successful. Also, usual customer reasonable language that's basically setting payment amount that are going to say something to the effect of this. Example: uh, the plan will reimburse eligible covered medical services and care at the lesser of the PPO negotiated amount or 140% of the Medicare allowable or whatever percent that plan mm -hmm. decides to, to mm -hmm. agree to. And then you could also throw into um, or the lesser of the build amount, mm -hmm. you know, in case the for some re odd reason the build amount is less um, and there's no PPO. Mm -hmm. like so you're saying the percentage of the PPO if there's a PPO network and 140% or 150% whatever they've selected in a reference-based pricing plan or the build amount or the build amount you, yeah. you specify that yeah and you could also put in there um, something like a, on a value-based payment as well mm -hmm. um, uh, and for drugs a similar thing um, relative pricing reference pricing value-based pricing mm -hmm. um, wholesale pricing Okay. Like, be be specific on that language. Be specific. The language is is key, and uh, I mean we've seen we've seen some pretty large bills now, um, where three to five million dollars uh, in bill, and thankfully they have Medicare language in there, mm -hmm. and so we're not necessarily locked into the PPO amount, mm -hmm. and so the plan the cost of the plan is significantly lower significantly mm -hmm. lower and if the cost of the plan is significantly lower the stop loss is going to be right cheaper more competitive mm -hmm. and language is important mm -hmm. how the plan will benchmark their costs and what they price is key okay. medicare is such a great benchmark it's the biggest payer in the u.s mm -hmm. uh, they set prices for almost every type of procedure, um, or at least they can help set um, relative costs and then you can expand it to other elements because you can say this is similar, uh -huh. I can apply this cost. Um, and so using a benchmark will help evaluate every element, the, how well is the PPO mm -hmm. working. If you're not benchmarking your 
claims mm-hmm. to the number one payer, then how do you know if you're managing the plan's assets well? Yeah. yeah. How do you know mm-hmm. if you're not doing that? Mm-hmm. So if you're just kind of, and is, is there fiduciary risk there? There could be, mm-hmm. right? Because Absolutely. the employees are paying into that plan. Mm-hmm. And if you're making that plan, so I would begin to do that immediately if you're not. Mm-hmm. And the best way of doing it is using benchmark as Medicare. Okay. And then once you once you have that in place, more will be revealed mm-hmm. because you'll see how much you're actually paying. Yeah. And you guys actually, when you write a stop loss policy, you um, one of the first things you do when they're trying to finalize the case when it's sold is you review the plan document. Absolutely. Every every. Yeah. Plan plan document. And how often do you recommend changes? We don't really recommend changes because that's not, as stop loss, that's not what we okay. do, but we encourage. Okay. What do you encourage? What kind uh, of things well, do you encourage? Thing, things, things like, like what we just, we've we just talked about, about. Okay. like reference-based pricing, exclusion of specialty drugs to reduce liability to the plan. Okay. But okay. honestly, you know, we will review each one mm-hmm. and underwrite accordingly. Right. Right. I know that we've always, our, our in our company, which is obviously we're consultants and brokers, we always want an excess carrier to say in writing that they accept the plan document in its entirety so that we know that there are no gaps from between what you guys are going to pay in stop loss and what the plan has to pay. Sure. Yeah. So I think that that's, something, that's, that's just kind of what we go off of, that you're accepting the plan document. So it sounds like you do, but you need to know what your risks are yes. before you write them. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. If people want to reach out to you and contact you, how would they do that? Uh, I can be reached at uh, telephone number 949-468-3022. That mm-hmm. is my direct line to my office. Or I can be emailed at rp at usbstoploss.com. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.